everyone, and welcome to the April 24th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Second District Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal of a claims adjuster's suit against her employer, who is also a prominent TPA. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Carla Garcia Laverentes versus Sedgwick Claims Management Services. Carla Garcia Laverentes filed a complaint against her employer, Sedgwick, alleging a myriad of disability-related claims under the California Fair Employment and Housing Act and other laws. She suffered from depression and anxiety, which she controlled with medication, also suffered from asthmatic bronchitis. Following her return to work after an episode of bronchitis, she expressed concern about the work environment and requested that the air ducts be cleaned. She also filed a workers' comp claim alleging an unhealthy work environment after she suffered yet another episode. While out on leave, she learned she was pregnant, so her doctor took her off of all of her medications. When she returned to work, she asked to be allowed to stay away from ill employees and, for the first time, requested Sedgwick change the location of her desk away from any heater or air conditioning vents. Sedgwick retained engineers to conduct an air quality study, which did not uncover any dangerous air contaminants. Plaintiff experienced yet another attack of bronchitis and never returned to work after that. She was granted disability leave, which was extended several times. Subsequently, she believed that Sedgwick had terminated her position. But her doctors continued to submit notes to Sedgwick with estimates of return to work dates. But she never did return to work, nor did she ever tell Sedgwick she could return. In fact, she had no contact with Sedgwick from late July 2010 until she moved to Fresno in October 2011. Following her filing of a civil action for discrimination, Sedgwick moved for summary judgment, which the trial court granted. The trial court concluded that the worker did not suffer an adverse employment action of termination, as she argued, and Sedgwick reasonably accommodated her disability and engaged in the good faith interactive process. The plaintiff appealed, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal of her case. The court noted that throughout the litigation, her theory of adverse employment action has been a moving target. First, she claimed she was terminated on May 27, 2010, in documents filed with the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. She then expanded that theory in litigation to argue she was terminated when she received a July 28 letter indicating her position would be filled for business reasons. Plaintiff expressed her subjective belief that the June 7th letter and later the July 28th letter indicated that she had been terminated, but her belief alone is not enough to defeat summary judgment. A new panel decision says that applicants must prove evidence of their competency in order to be allowed to manage their Medicare set-aside agreement. Here's what happened in the case of Villa Prando versus the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Fernando Villa Prando filed multiple claims for industrial injuries while employed as a laborer by two different employers, 
Martin Dusters, and Doherty Brothers. He claimed injury to his lumbar spine and both employers at both employers and additionally to his cervical spine and bilateral shoulders at Doherty Brothers. His three claims were settled by compromise and release. The party's settlement included a Medicare set-aside agreement through which the state fund would fund applicants' future medical treatment. In an addendum to the compromise and release agreement, applicant agreed that Bridgepoint would administer the MSA and that the state fund would pay Bridgepoint a fee for the initial cost of administration. But the agreement between applicant and the state fund did not contain any language pertaining to any future contingencies involving the administration of his MSA by Bridgepoint. There was no reference to a potential change of administration to another third-party administrator or to applicant as a self-insured administrator in the event Bridgepoint failed to provide appropriate services. Applicant petitioned to replace Bridgepoint and self-administer his MSA based upon his claims that he has had problems obtaining medical services. The work comp judge denied his request based upon the finding that applicant had not established that the MSA had been administered inappropriately. Saul Villaprando requested reconsideration and the WCAB granted it and rescinded the joint findings in order and returned this matter for trial for further proceedings in the split panel decision. There was no record as to the specific rights, duties, and indemnifications as between the parties enumerated in the compromise and release agreement. The board pointed out that such terms would reasonably be found in the contractual agreement that led to the MSA being administered by Bridgepoint. In order for applicant to be allowed to self-administer his MSA, he should establish his competency to manage his affairs and comply with the CMS requirements for self-administration. If the State Compensation Insurance Fund still opposes applicants' administration of his own MSA, it would then have to show good cause why the change should not be permitted. Commissioner Zalewski dissented. She would affirm the joint findings and order for the reasons stated in the Workers' Comp Administrative Law Judge's report. She went on to say that applicants' evidence of his dissatisfaction with the agreed-upon administrator is not sufficient to establish good cause to set aside the party's agreement. And now our crime report. The Orange County District Attorney has filed charges against 26 doctors, pharmacists, and business owners in a crackdown on an alleged $40 million workers' compensation fraud that involved overbilling for unnecessary compound creams and urine tests. 37-year-old Tanya Moreland King and her husband, 38-year-old Christopher King, both of Beverly Hills, own medical billing and medical management companies known as Monarch Medical Group Incorporated, King Medical Management Incorporated, and One Source Laboratories Incorporated. The Kings are accused of pocketing more than $18.5 million from at least 27 workers' compensation insurance companies. And they are accused of masterminding a complex insurance fraud scheme of recruiting doctors and pharmacists to prescribe unnecessary treatment 
for workers' compensation insurance patients. 56-year-old Charles Bonner and 66-year-old Mervyn Miller, both pharmacists and co-owners of Stevens Pharmacy in Orange County, are accused of selling more than $1 million in compounded creams that were not FDA-approved nor have known medical benefits. The Kings are accused of making oral and written agreements with doctors across the state, paying them each time they prescribed a compound cream or oral medication or ordered a urine drug test. The doctors or the companies connected to them are accused of labeling the payments marketing expenses in an attempt to conceal the kickbacks. The Kings purchased the creams from Stevens Pharmacy for between $15 and $40 per tube, which were then billed to workers' compensation carriers for between $250 and $700 per tube. Using their company, Monarch Medical Group, as a cover, the Kings are accused of repackaging meds sent directly to the physicians involved in the scam. As the doctors dispense the medication, the barcode on the packaging was scanned, notifying the Kings. Once the Kings received the payment, they are accused of splitting the profits with the prescribing physician based upon a prearranged agreement. The Kings are also accused of providing technical staff to participating physicians' offices through their company One Source Labs. The doctors are accused of ordering unnecessary urine tests under the guise of verifying patients were taking their medications as prescribed. The urine samples were then tested by one source lab technicians or the doctor's staff and billed to the insurance company on behalf of the physicians by King Medical Management. The results were then referred to Pacific Toxicology Laboratory for additional testing regardless of the results. Through their company, One Source Labs, the Kings are accused of paying Pacific Toxicology a flat rate of $60 per test and billing the insurance carriers hundreds of dollars for each test. Operation Psyched Out nabs more Los Angeles pharmacists. The owners of two local drug wholesale companies were among four defendants taken into custody on federal structuring charges that allege they made millions of dollars in cash deposits designed to circumvent federal cash reporting requirements. This indictment marks the third phase of Operation Psyched Out. The investigation previously resulted in convictions against 17 defendants connected with the operators of a fraudulent medical clinic, Manor Medical Imaging. A medical doctor employed at that location, Kenneth Johnson, and two owners of a San Marino pharmacy, Fick Lim and Thiena Koo, were convicted in that case. In the second phase, the owner of a Glendale pharmacy, Peter Bagdasarian, was convicted of prescription drug misbranding connected to this scheme. In this third phase, federal authorities arrested 41-year-old Richard Kassarian of Burbank, the owner of Burbank-based TriMed Medical Wholesalers, Incorporated. Kayasarian is the lead defendant in a 20-count indictment returned on April 6 by a federal grand jury that charges four individuals and TriMed in relation to two separate schemes to structure millions of dollars in proceeds through a funnel bank account 
set up in the names of shell companies. Two other defendants, 31-year-old Deru Biglari and 33-year-old Giovanni Markarian, who own the Glendale-based drug wholesale business JD Pharmaceutical Wholesaler Incorporated, and the fourth defendant, 56-year-old Frank Mesaparian, surrendered. These three co-conspirators, all Glendale residents, are charged with depositing millions of dollars of TriMed checks for Kassarian and returning the funds to him in the form of cash. As part of the scheme, TriMed collected millions of dollars from business activities and Kassarian prepared checks that he delivered to his co-defendants. These transactions were designed to prevent banks from reporting the cash withdrawals to the federal government, which is required for every cash transaction over $10,000. The indictment also charges Kassarian with lying to federal agents about the funds during an interview in June of 2016. Finally, the indictment charges Kassarian with filing false tax returns that fraudulently overstated TriMed's business expenses. If convicted on the 20 counts in the indictment, Kassarian would face a statutory maximum of 94 years in prison. Big Larry and Markarian, if convicted, would each face 45 years, and Mesopian could be sentenced to as much as 35 years in prison. Prosecutors in Monterey County have filed seven criminal counts against the small construction firm that employed Robert Reagan, the bulldozer operator killed last July while working on the massive Soberanes Fire, the costliest wildfire in U.S. history. Reagan's death prompted investigations by Cal Fire and state workplace regulators, as well as the state agency that keeps tabs on California's construction industry. The incident led to a wrongful death lawsuit against the state of California, and it brought attention to the vulnerabilities faced by hundreds of private contractors that helped battle California's wildfires year after year. The construction company told the Contractor State License Board that it had no employees and therefore did not need to provide workers' compensation. And this is not the first problem it has had with the licensing board. The company has had its license suspended eight times by state regulators in the last four years. In July 2012, the Contractor State License Board investigators found that a crew employed by the company was not covered by work comp. Zerban was then cited and fined $3,500. The company did not pay that fine right away, so its contractor's license was suspended. The firm then agreed to a payment plan with the agency to pay the fine, but it failed to make a payment and its license was suspended again. The company's license was then suspended several other times because its subcontractors and material suppliers were not paid. The monarch Ray County District Attorney's Office is now charging the owner of Zerban Concrete Construction with two counts of insurance fraud, two counts of filing a forged document, tax evasion, failure to collect taxes, and failure to provide workers' compensation insurance. Six of the seven charges are felonies. The charges come after state regulators moved to bar the company from working in California. The Contractor State License Board announced in March that the firm violated three state regulations in connection with its work on the fire. 
Zerban Concrete is one of a number of companies Cal Fire has contracted with on the Sobrain's fire. At practice, the agency employs on large fires. And in regulatory news, the Labor Code now provides for the suspension of physicians, practitioners, and providers from participating in the workers' compensation system. If they have been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor that involves fraud or abuse of the Medi-Cal or Medicare program, workers' compensation system, or any patient, and for other reasons that relates to the individual medical practice as it pertains to patient care, or suspension due to fraud or abuse from the federal Medicare or Medicaid programs, or if the surrender or revocation of the individual's license, certificate, or approval to provide health care occurs. A suspension for participating in the workers' comp system means that they are unable to provide or obtain payment for any treatment, evaluation, or other service related to a claim. A physician, practitioner, or provider who has been suspended due to a conviction is also subject to having all pending lien claims consolidated and dismissed in a special lien proceeding unless they can prove the liens did not arise from the conduct or activity that led to their suspension. And now three new provider suspensions have been added to the growing list of suspensions. Julian Garcia, a National City DME provider, Jethro Marujo, an El Centro interpreter, and Peter Anthony Bioris, a Montag physician, were all suspended this April. They join a growing list of 13 suspensions since the adoption of the new law. The State Compensation Insurance Fund released its 2016 Annual Report of Financial Performance for the year, and the report said that the state fund's premium continued to decline in 2016. The decline was attributed to the soft market and increased competition. In response to favorable loss development, the state fund lowered its premium rate by 9.5% last September and implemented other initiatives throughout 2016 to create product and service values for its customers. The state fund had a $478 million underwriting loss in 2016, slightly less than the $483 million underwriting loss in the prior year. The 2016 loss decrease was due to a reduction in new claims and claims inventory compared to the prior year, but its combined loss ratio was 130.2%. However, the underwriting loss of $478 million was offset by investment income of $627 million for the year, producing an overall net profit for the company. State Fund maintained a balanced investment portfolio that was focused on both credit quality and investment yield. In 2016, the State Fund reached successful resolutions with most of the defendants and two RICO suits filed by it in 2013. The purpose of the suits was to expose and prosecute a complex fraud scheme that was being perpetrated by a number of medical vendors. In settling this cases, it claims to have achieved some important benefits for injured workers. Many of the doctors involved will no longer treat injured workers and will transfer care of their patients uh, that they currently have. 
They also agreed to waive more than $40 million in liens at the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. The National Healthcare Anti-Fraud Association honored the state fund's Special Investigations Unit with their 2016 Investigation of the Year Award. This award cited the unit's contributions to an FBI investigation that exposed a widespread workers' compensation insurance bribery and fraud scheme and resulted in 13 indictments. The state fund doubled its annual fraud restitution collection rates to more than $2.1 million, which helps level the playing field for California businesses. California lawmakers are slated to hear the details on proposed law that would create an anti-fraud division within the state's Division of Workers' Compensation. Assembly Bill 1697, if passed, would amend the state's labor code to better tackle workers' compensation fraud in the state. Existing law creates the fraud division within the Department of Insurance to administer provisions related to insurance fraud. And existing law requires the insurance commissioner to ensure that the fraud division aggressively pursues all reported indictments of probable workers' comp fraud. So this bill would require the administrative director to establish an anti-fraud support unit within the Division of Workers' Compensation. The bill would set forth the duties of the unit, including coordinating and advancing anti-fraud activities for the division and serving as the point of contact between the division and other agencies and entities engaged in anti-fraud activities. AB 1697 was introduced by 10 lawmakers, including Assemblyman Tom Daly, the chairman of the Committee on Insurance. Last March, the committee requested that the state's Joint Legislative Audit Committee investigated the state's system to prevent, detect, and prosecute fraud. An audit that the office says is now underway and will be completed by 2018. The WCIRB has completed its report on statewide workers' compensation insurance loss premium experience through the end of 2016. California written premium for 2016 was approximately 18.1% billion dollars, which is 3% above the written premium reported the year before. The preliminary calendar year combined loss and expense ratio for 2016 reported by insurers is 96%, which is below the combined ratios for the last several years and the 130% combined ratio reported a moment ago by the state fund. The lower combined ratios are primarily a result of increased premium levels and significant reductions in insurer case reserves. The combined ratio is calculated by taking the sum of incurred losses and expenses and then dividing them by earned premium. The ratio is typically expressed as a percentage. A ratio below 100% indicates that the company is making underwriting profit while a ratio above 100% means that it is paying out more money in claims than it is receiving in premiums. Even if the combined ratio is above 100%, a company can potentially still make a profit because the ratio does not include the income received from investments. 
The WCIRB projects indemnity claim frequency for accident year 2016 to be 1.3% below the frequency for 2015, but 9% above the frequency for 2009. The frequency increases experienced from 2009 through 2014 are largely attributed to increases in cumulative injury claims, late reported indemnity claims, claims involving injuries to multiple body parts, and claims from the Los Angeles Basin area. 2015 and 16 represent the first consecutive years of projected indemnity claim frequency decline since before the Great Recession. The WCIRB projects the average cost of a 2016 indemnity claim to be approximately $82,000, which is 4% higher than the projected severity for 2015 and 10% higher than that for 2013. And in medical news, spine surgeons are noticing an increase in patients with neck and upper back pain likely related to poor posture during prolonged smartphone use. Some patients, particularly young patients, who should not yet have back and neck issues are reporting disc hernias and alignment problems. The study authors from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center write in the Spine Journal. And there is a reversal in normal spine curvature shown in an x-ray as people look down at their phones from for hours every day. And by the time patients get to a doctor, they're already in bad pain and have disc issues. And of course, all of this can lead to continuous trauma claims for exposure on the job. The real concern is that we do not know what this means down the road for children who use phones all day long. The problem is that people often look down when using their smartphones, particularly when texting as compared to browsing online or watching videos. Previous studies have also found that people hold their necks at around 45 degrees and it becomes even worse as they sit versus stand. The impact on the spine increases at higher flexed postures. While in a neutral position looking forward, the head weighs about 10 to 12 pounds. At a 15 degree flex, it feels like 27 pounds. The stress on the spine increases by degree, and at 60 degrees, it feels like 60 pounds. In children who have spines that are still growing and not developed, Orthopedists are not sure what to expect or if this could change normal anatomies. The researchers suggest simple lifestyle changes to relieve the stress from the text neck posture. They recommend holding cell phones in front of the face or nearly eye level while texting. They also suggest using two hands and two thumbs to create a more symmetrical and comfortable position for the spine. Beyond smartphone use, the spine surgeons recommend that people who work at computers or on tablets use an elevated monitor stand so it sits at a natural horizontal eye level. With laptops, they recommend a similar adaptation by using a separate keyboard and mouse so the laptop can be at eye level and still create a good ergonomic position while typing. But with a small smartphone, if you raise the phone at eye level to avoid the look-down posture, 
it will add new concerns for the shoulder due to the elevated arm posture. A more practical recommendation would be frequent rest breaks or some physical exercise that can strengthen the neck and shoulder muscles. Some apps now give an alarm signal to users to avoid prolonged looking down posture. And one doctor tells patients to lie on their beds and hang their heads over the edge, extending the neck backward to restore the normal arc in the neck. While sitting, he recommends aligning the neck and spine by checking that the ears are over the shoulders and the shoulders are over the hips. He says that you can also ask your friend to take a photo of your upper body when you're texting, then use the picture as a background image on your phone. That should remind you to take breaks frequently, even a short break of a few seconds, which is called a micro break, can help tissues recover. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.